Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Defiant Weekly Recap with uh, our print team. I'm Camille Russo, the founder of the Defiant. We have YYC Trader, our head of news, and Owen for now, our, one of our staff reporters here. So uh, welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining. Happy Friday. Um, as always, we have a, a packed show today with uh, tons of uh, developments happening in crypto, DeFi, and Web3. Um, we'll be talking about uh, Vitalik's a post on where he was warning about overloading uh, Ethereum uh, with other applications using Ethereum's uh, social consensus. Um, and we have a special guest to talk about this topic. He'll be joining us uh, in in a minute. Uh, Sri Ram Kanan, the, uh, the founder of Eigenlayer, uh, will be joining us to talk about, uh, about this. Um, and here he is, Sriram. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, just uh, in introducing you. Yeah, so excited to have you join us. Um, uh, and then, you know, af after the first half of the show, we'll, where we'll be talking with Sriram, we'll talk about uh, markets. Um, markets are up after billions in options expired earlier today. Uh, Tresor sales are up after the, you know, the whole ledger controversy with its recover feature. Solana embracing AI. Um, hackers uh, stealing from Tornado Cash, then proposing to fix the exploit that, that they found. Uh, and, you know, that, that's just uh, uh, some of the headlines that, that we'll be covering today. Um, but uh, to start, let's, let's talk about uh, Ethereum's social consensus, um, how that uh, involves Eigenlayer. Uh, you know, it, it, it looks like, it, it sounds like just like layer up and layer of like complicated uh, topics. Uh, so maybe Shriram, you can help us uh, clarify. Um, maybe let's just start with um, with uh, talking about Eigenlayer, like what, what does it do? And then we can get into Vitalik's post. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Kamala, for the opportunity to come and speak here. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm Sri Ram. I'm a founder of a project called Eigenlayer, also a faculty member at the University of Washington, Seattle, where I run the UW Blockchain Research Lab, from which I've been on leave over the last two years building this project. Um, my uh, What Eigenlayer does is allow Ethereum stakers who, you know, staking is you're putting down a bunch of stake and then making a commitment that you're going to validate uh, a certain uh, certain blocks according to the Ethereum rules. And what we do in uh, Eigenlayer is enable uh, Ethereum stakers to go and uh, restake, which is basically use the same stake for validating other protocols that are built on top of uh, Eigenlayer. So Eigenlayer itself is the two-sided marketplace. One side is the suppliers of decentralized trust, which is Ethereum stakers. On the other side is the consumers of decentralized trust, which is new services. Imagine you're building a new bridge, a new chain, a new Oracle, uh, you know, any of these new kinds of applications. How do you leverage a large existing decentralized trust network to go do all of those things? So that's the core scope of Eigenlayer. And we started this because as an innovator in the space, we found that the at the center of like, you know, how we push the space forward is pattern infrastructure. 
But better infrastructure is log jammed by anybody when they try to create a new infrastructure, they have to go start a whole new token economy and a decentralized trust network, which is extremely difficult to bootstrap. So we want to solve this bootstrapping problem for all the innovators to come. So our driving value is open innovation. And so happy to be here to explain how this interacts with, uh, you know, some of the things that you just brought up. Awesome. Okay, so uh, basically, um, the idea is to, uh, to provide this uh, base security layer for applications uh, building on, on Ethereum by That's right. allowing Ethereum stakers to kind of use that stake elsewhere. All right. Hey, Shreedam. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so, would you say it's uh, similar to the Cosmos shared security approach in a way, or it, even like Polkadot, for the, for example? Yeah, uh, it is somewhat similar. So, shared security has been a concept that has been around. Let me just like give the overview of shared security in the way we see it. Um, I think Ethereum started this concept of shared security in a kind of very fundamental way. Like pre-Ethereum, you know, if you want to go build a new chain, like go be go do your own thing separately, right? Like the Bitcoin name coin, color coin, matter coin, all this like interesting stuff that happened. And it was very again the same bootstrapping problem. Every time you have a new application, you have to bootstrap your own trust network. And Ethereum said, no, no, like let's just create a single general purpose programmable language like the Ethereum virtual machine, on top of which anybody can come and write applications. So the application level became modular, open innovation, and shared security came from the trust network supplying through the consensus and virtual machine and gas limits and everything. So um and what Polkadot did, like several years after, is to say, actually, let's try to go deeper into the stack of open innovation. Can we let people do more things? Maybe people can pro program new virtual machines. So creating this new abstraction layer uh, called the WebAssembly virtual machine, the WASM. And now like anybody can write new things, which as long as you can compile to WASM, you can actually create uh, programs that, that work on top of Polkadot. So Polkadot did, did this thing, and then we see um, uh, Cosmos, Cosmos started with the other end. It started with no shared security, just open innovation. The idea that anybody can take and fork an entire blockchain stack and do whatever they want with it, but they can all interoperate and communicate with each other, but no shared security. So as they, so basically like Ethereum and uh, Cosmos started with the opposite ends. Ethereum like started with all shared security, very little open innovation. Polkadot, sorry, uh, Cosmos started with or you know, full open innovation, but no shared security. And I think the the roadmaps are converging. On the Ethereum side, layer twos happened. Layer twos is expanding already, just to the same extent that Polkadot's uh, parachains expand the freedom, which is that anybody can go build a new layer two, and layer two absorbs some of the execution trust from Ethereum. Okay, but I think all of the, the at least still the layer twos and, and the parachain Polkadot systems do not allow you to borrow trust beyond the limited confines of the virtual machine. Why? Because, you know, the in Polkadot, you get executed on the, uh, uh, your, your execution is checked on the relay, relay chain. Parachain's execution is checked on the relay chain. And in layer twos, the, uh, the rollups execution is checked on the EVM. So only instructions that are compatible and verifiable by the virtual machine can be built on top of the, the system. 
uh, suppose you had an idea for uh, I have this crazy consensus protocol, which instead of like waiting for 12 seconds for interblock time and 12 minutes for finality on Ethereum, let's say I want to build a protocol which finalizes in half a second. I cannot use these existing systems to get the same confirmation guarantees because whenever I confirm in half a second, at that time, I don't have the economic security of Ethereum backing me to actually go, you know, provide that confirmation in a strong manner. So that's what, that's why really Eigenlayer enters. Uh, Eigenlayer enables trust to be offered at the most raw manner. Raw is basically, I can go program every single node and ask them to do whatever they want. How does this interact with interchange security of Cosmos? Cosmos is uh, interchange security somewhat related to, I, I at least the first version of it is called replicated security. Replicated security is the Cosmos hub can opt in and provide serve, you know, validation to some other chain. There are two differences from like the Eigenlayer worldview there. Like number one is the hub has to do a governance upgrade to basically opt in to a new or a governance vote to opt in to be a producer for a new chain. Uh, whereas in Eigenlayer, every single validator, it's validator level opt-in. You know, any single validator can opt-in. And this is not because, you know, you know, Cosmos didn't think about validator opt-in. Validator opt-in requires a complex system of adjudication, which has to be on-chain. And Ethereum has a very highly well-developed culture of fraud proofs, for example, which are needed to actually keep the validators to account. So that's number one. Um, one, one difference. The second difference is uh, validators on uh, Cosmos. One of the problems when you do interchange security or supply security to many, many different things is now every node, if all validators opt into all these different things, they're actually doing a lot of work, which means they're validating thousands of chains, which is actually very non-scalable. Ethereum's already kind of committed to the modular roadmap. So the way we think about this is very different. The way we think about how services built on top of Eigenlayer is that these will be uh, modules which can all compose with each other. For example, data availability can be a module it, it, and it can be highly scalable because you know every node downloads a small amount of data, but together they all have enough data. So that's a highly scalable data layer. Then you can have an execution layer, then you can have an Oracle layer, then you can have... Basically, the way we think about it is very similar to how the internet evolved. If you go back to 1994 and you know you wanted to build a web application, you have to build the server, you have to build the identity stack, you have to build the payment stack, you have to build the database stack, and then you have to build whatever little application you were building. All of these had to be done by the same guy. The way we think about it is Ethereum's already there. It is so, but in, already in the internet today, like it's like AWS is the server, like you don't need to worry about the server, like you just throw it on the cloud. You don't need to worry about authorization. You use a standard SaaS service like OAuth. You don't need to worry about like payment, you use Stripe. You don't need to worry about DB, you use MongoDB. And then you tie all these together and then form an application. That's the same vision we have, except, you know, we are in the decentralized economy. So instead of AWS being the service provider, Ethereum and its validators are the service providers. On top of which, Eigenlayer enables this more flexible market so that anybody can come and build these services like an ordering service, a data service, um, an Oracle service, and all these things. And then, you know, people can compose these services to build whatever chains they want. So the, the unit of account or the unit that we are supporting is somewhat different. We want to support modules that interact with each other to create services. So that's a, 
quick overview of the differences. I, my, I, okay, so my question here is that I understand that the, the very reason that Ethereum was created was to allow for anyone to build on top of it. So, you know, for what was confusing to me is already people can build any any dApp they want on, on top of Ethereum and they are already using Ethereum security. So why do they need eigenlayer? Like why why this extra layer when when they can yes. just go and build on Ethereum? So the way you know you know it's basically at what resolution at what level of like granularity can you program Ethereum? So the way Ethereum works is there's this EVM the Ethereum virtual machine, and you can program any any instructions that can just feed into the EVM, right? Like that is the level of programmability. But inside the Ethereum protocol, what is happening is you take this EVM execution, you split it up into different things, you send it to many nodes, there are tens of thousands of nodes or 500,000 virtual nodes, like you send it to all of these nodes, they all arrive at consensus, they, they come to agreement, they say that they've stored the data, whatever, all of these services are bundled together into a single monolithic service. Now, but let's say I wanted to, I don't wanna just write a program at the level of the virtual machine, I want to say what each node in the uh, consensus protocol should be doing. That is a very different level of programmability. So for an application developer, they probably want to say, just write an EVM code and deploy it. But an infrastructure builder, right? You want to build, why do we have this like era of many different L1s? We have them because each of them came up with a new consensus protocol. Each of them came up with a new virtual machine. Each of them came up with a different idea for how to set gas limits. You know, Solana sets like large gas limits, right? Like each of them have a different way of coordinating the distributed system. What we are saying, all of them, you can build a Solana, you can build a Avalanche, you can build a Chainlink, you can build any of these things on top of Ethereum staking. So that is the core difference mm -hmm. is in the level of programmability is not a level of the Ethereum virtual machine, and the coordination across the end nodes, you know, which is where a lot of efficiency improvements can come, is how do we better coordinate? How do we reduce the information overheads? How do we use these nodes to not only run like uh, things that are supported in the current EVM, but you know, I want to go and fetch data from the internet. I want to verify an AI execution. All of these other things which are not supported can all be done with uh, something like IDL. Okay, got it. Um, so if, if you guys don't have any more, more questions on that, maybe we can go uh, talk about Vitalik's post and, you know, your thoughts on that, Shreera. Yeah. I, I, could yeah, I, I just do one? Yeah, we're just like, so yeah, we're talking about infrastructure. You're taking a certain subset, like a certain subset of nodes will opt into some other procedure, which isn't encompassed by the EVM. Um, like... So what 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 is an example of that? Because yeah, like 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 Cami or I'll just speak for myself. Like yeah, I have this idea that like yeah, EVM is you know Turing, excuse me, uh, Turing complete, and you can deploy any application. So so what if we could just like run through an example like like yeah yeah I, I think the simplest example yeah. that uh, I can mention is you know let's start with the roll up economy today and then see like what are the some of the major problems and how we can help solve them right yeah so. If you take the roll-up economy today, all roll-ups have to write all the data to Ethereum. Yeah. Because you know, you you're offloading computation in a roll-up, but you have to publish the inputs and outputs to the computation so that other people can transparently verify it, 
or continue running that rollup even if you as a node go down. Yeah. So data publication or proof of data publication is not colloquially called data availability in the space. So data availability is a very important core primitive that Ethereum offers already. Right. But the data bandwidth of Ethereum is if you calculate, like you don't use Ethereum for any computation, anything, just use it for writing like data, unprocessed data. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then the data bandwidth of Ethereum is 80 kilobytes per second. Okay. 80 kilobytes per second. If you're saying that the entire like crypto economy can run on 80 kilobytes per second, I, I, I'm more bullish than that. Let's just say that. Yeah. I'm more bullish than like 80 kilobytes per second can sustain all of the crypto economy and all the rollups together. Sure. We need hundreds of gigabytes per second. That's what we need to actually run social networks. We want to run blue sky. We want to run like, you know, the metaverse. We want to run a lot of things here. Like this right. is not enough. Right. So how do we do this is, you know, so on top of eigenlayer, so there is no way to do anything on the EVM and increase the data bandwidth of uh, Ethereum yeah. because that is a part of the core consensus protocol. It is dependent on how messages are passed in the network, how bandwidth is utilized, all nodes download all the data, they download only portions of the data. There are all kinds of intricate infrastructure details which determine that you actually can only do 83 kilobytes per second. Right. By coming up with more innovations, not only us, many people in the space come up with new innovations, but they have nowhere to go inside the Ethereum ecosystem. Let's take Celestia as an example. Yeah. They were actually Ethereum, uh, you know, they were, many of their original uh, contributions happened in collaboration with Ethereum research. Mm-hmm. And But to build Celestia, they had to go build a whole new trust network right. because that's the only way it can be done. Like there is no other way to you cannot program Celestia as a smart contract. That's not because it changes how the nodes interact with each other, changes the way how data is propagated through the network, all of these things. And if you want that level of programmability, so EigenDA is a data availability layer we are building on top of EigenDA, which kind of brings some of the best ideas in this space, including Ethereum's own future roadmap called Tank Sharding. Bring some of those ideas, and then now we can deploy it today. Yeah. So, this is the degree of freedom that Eigenlayer offers is anybody who innovates at the infrastructure layer doesn't have to go scrambling to figure out how to bootstrap a whole new ecosystem and an economy around it. They can leverage this yeah. massive existing uh, trust network. Cool. Awesome. Thanks. Super Sorry to cut you yeah. No, no, of course. Um, and just wanted to to have a, a, a little plug for our podcast. A few weeks ago, um, we had Triram on the Defined podcast. So to learn about uh, Eigenlayer and go deeper, definitely uh, check out uh, our interview here um, on, on our YouTube and Spotify. Yeah, and highly, highly, highly recommend that from my, my, my yeah. end too. It was one of the best podcasts that I, I happened to be on Tegan Sachin amazing host we discussed a lot of different things including you know to touch on something that owen uh, just said we discussed how prof coins which is what some of the <laughs> professors started like protocols from several years were mm-hmm. called and why prof coins needed to be coins because professors do infrastructure and infrastructure needs a new network and a new network needs a new token and how we can solve the mm-hmm. prof coin problem using eigenlayers so there are a lot of very interesting questions by tegan so please uh, awesome yeah um and then um eigenlayer was was brought up in this post by by vitalik this week uh, where you know the title is don't overload ethereum's consensus 
and um, he was kind of sounding the the alarm, uh, saying that this this is a systemic risk for Ethereum. So like using like very just strong words, and we were surprised to see that uh, from Vitalik, uh, who is usually you know just all all about building on Ethereum and welcoming uh, people to Ethereum. But you know it was it it, it was um, really interesting to see him. Uh, bring up this risk to the network, and I think, you know, th there were there were different risks that that he mentioned, uh, but uh, one of them was restaking, and he, you know, they specifically mentioned uh, eigenlayer here, um, and you know, like our uh, how how we we explained it is that he uh, Vitalik. Um, doesn't see any problem with restaking itself, but he does see a problem when applications that are uh, using Ethereum stake are also re relying on Ethereum validators to resolve conflict on on those applications. So if if he, uh, to he, resolve con a conflict socially on those applications, socially, so, yeah, right. Uh, yeah. yeah. So ahead. the way I would phrase it is, I think the title of the post. We very much welcome this post, and I think it's very much in alignment with how we think about what kinds of applications benefit the ecosystem. Um, the title of the post was "Don't Overload Ethereum's Consensus," but I think it's much more appropriately called "Don't Overload Ethereum's Social Consensus," mm -hmm. and. Let me explain why uh, I think this is a really good article and, and maybe like draw an analogy uh, after that. I think the, uh, why do we need social consensus in Ethereum first? Like why not, it's a, it's a protocol, it's an algorithm, it's just running. Like why are we using social consensus to begin with? The Ethereum consensus protocol has two guarantees. One is safety, which means whatever I sign and like whenever a transaction is finalized, it doesn't get unfinalized, right? Like that would be terrible. Um, to protect against safety from no, you know, the validator set, safety failures from the validator set, the way Ethereum does it is if you sign two blocks with the same block number or whatever, like then you get slashed, you lose your stake, right? This is in protocol, this is algorithmic. So it doesn't need any social consensus for this. Protocol automatically detects or Camilla signed two messages saying that block one is correct and that is this is the right block one and that is the right block one and that's clearly uh, violated the core covenant of the protocol. But the second aspect, which you know the protocol cannot detect internally, is censorship or liveness failures. Like the another core protocol property is liveness, which is that whenever like transactions come in, they need to be included in the Ethereum protocol. And if transactions paying the right amount of fee are still not included because of you know censorship due to some reasons, even perpetually, right? That would be considered a massive failure at the protocol level. So Ethereum, unfortunately, this is not detectable at an algorithmic level because at the level of the core protocol, you don't know that a transaction was sent and then it was not included because how do you know that the transaction was sent if it's not even in the blockchain, right? Like there's no way there's no locus to know that fact. So the protocol relies on social consensus. And what I think the article is doing is marking the boundary for what is Ethereum social consensus reserved for. Ethereum social consensus is reserved for protecting the core protocol, which is the liveness failures on the core protocol. Mm -hmm. Now, what you don't want, what you don't want is to have 
oh, you know, let's say uh, there's a major like DAP built on top of Ethereum, like Uniswap or Compound or a $100 billion stablecoin. And then there was a bug in, the, in that contract. So now if you said, oh, every bug in the smart contract, now I have to go fork Ethereum to like make sure that the you know, bug exploit is removed from the Ethereum history, mm-hmm. this makes social consensus very fragile. So this is true for applications built on top. It is true for layer twos built on top, like you know, the whole layer two economy. If a layer two goes around saying we are too big, and therefore, like if some something bad happens to us, then Ethereum will fork for us. You know, Vitalik's pointing out, no, no, that's high risk. Don't do that. And same thing with restaking. If you go restake and uh, you know something bad happens, then everything like you know you got slashed or like you know something crazy happens. No, don't go to Ethereum and say that oh Ethereum will fork because you know I did something wrong at the application layer. I think this is basically a specification of the modular boundary. The boundary is Ethereum provides the two guarantees that it's supposed to provide, safety and liveness, on top of which you build whatever you want, but don't externalize that risk back into the consensus layer. So the one way I would phrase this is, you know, we in the crypto space like talking about FATFI, like the financial sector, right? And one of the things that happens there is banks go and take excess risk, right? And then when something blows up, they do over leverage, they do this and that. And then now things blow up, then you say, oh, government has to bail us out. Right? And, you know, what, what, uh, what the governments need to do in these situations is to make it very clear there are no bailouts. You're on your own. You do your thing. You know, you're a bank. You take risks. That's what you're up to do. The free market has to do all these things. That's how the economy on the crypto sphere grows. Yeah. But... Is the same thing here that the social consensus is the bailout. So don't expect a bailout from the social con- Ethereum social consensus when the issue is with somebody else building a faulty protocol or a risky thing at the application level. So I think this unif- this principle uniformly applies to applications built on top. In fact, I think it's a much more relevant thing to major things like stable coins. So you built a stable coin, and if you know there was a bug in the program. You build a Uniswap, you build a compound. So this is at the application level. It's true at the layer two level. Like what if layer twos, uh, you know, get faulty and then now depend on Ethereum to fork for the fault. Same thing with restaking. So anything that's building on top of Ethereum, I think the correct principle. So we very much welcome it. In fact, what is laid out in the article, which is kind of, I don't know, everybody missed it, is a bunch of low risk use cases. You scroll all the way down, like the end, basically with saying, let's promote the low risk use cases of restaking. Yeah. But avoid going through the slippery slopes of, you know, uh, what he calls the shelling, shelling fence. Let's build a shelling fence. It's a really beautiful concept. At the conclusion, I think you can see this. Uh, uh, so, so I, I have one question. Um, I saw I talked to Dan Elitzer um, about um, Vitalik's post, and he he was kind. Of, he suggested that he felt like. Vitalik maybe underrated like the economic incentives behind a project which could come to put pressure on Ethereum's social consensus. So like, you know, he felt like, you know, and he, he had very kind words for you and Vitalik. So it wasn't like, a you know, he's engaging in the, you know, intellectual discussion, but, but saying that like, you know, if, if there's some service that is built on Eigen layer and offers a couple extra points of yield and, 
grows really large. He was saying um, he wasn't, I, I don't want to misrepresent, but like, how, how would you address that situation? Like, like if, if mm -hmm. someone is offering some irresistible yield and it grows really large on Eigen layer and it's like, you know, you can encourage a social environment to not expose Ethereum to that risk. But like, I feel like there's also some like game theoretic endpoints yes. where, Yes, you know, that's really what I think Vitalik's post is doing, is to set the game theoretic endpoints as, as, as tightly as possible. So here is what, I, what we are doing. Like uh, when, I, when I said that Eigenlayer already designed to incorporate these principles, how do we design to incorporate these principles when anybody can build anything on top of Eigenlayer? Right. right. So the way we build it is there are two tiers of service on Eigenlayer. One is the permission tier, and the other one is the permissionless tier. Mm. So... How are like, you know, the, the major thing that we have to worry about is what if like somebody builds a service and it has a slashing and the slashing is, you know, erroneously triggered, what happens to that, right? Like what, how do we protect like stakers from getting erroneously slashed, which is what the risk is, right? Like what is the real risk is, and stakers, when like say majority of, let's say all each stakers opt in to Eigenlayer, and then like there's a service, like I said, offers 2%, 5%, 20% yield. Like we've seen 20% before. So, you know, they opt in. And then like suddenly, you know, everybody gets slashed. That's the event that is like dangerous. So what we do is we have a slashing veto, which is basically don't rely on Ethereum social consensus. Have a social consensus layer inside Eigenlayer, right? So the this layer is basically a bunch of like the community members, builders, and so on, they can actually, the only thing they can do is to veto a slashing. They cannot add new slashing, but slashing mm -hmm. is triggered by the contract, they can veto it. Okay, so now because we have the slashing veto, we have to onboard which services are protected by the slashing veto because, you know, that's one of the main things is, you know, they're agreeing to figure out if the slashing is right or wrong, so they need to know what is the slashing. So there is an onboarding. So this is a permission tile. In this permission tier, essentially what happens is, uh, you know, we vet the services for the basic principles, which I said. I think the principles are very simple. Actually, what, you know, Vitalik laid out, which is already kind of internalized. You can go and see any of the 50 to 100 like podcasts I've done. And we talk about many, many use cases. All of them fall under the Lotus category that Vitalik's talking about. And why is this? Because we're operating under the same rubric. Rubric is very simple. Use slashing for objectively attributable false. You know, you sign a message, you sign another message saying that this is, this is the right block and that is the right block. That is an objectively attributable fault, right? Nobody can question. That's cryptographically provable. So use slashing for objectively attributable false. For any other kinds of things like oracles, which I mentioned, which is not objectively attributable, whether like ETH to USD is $2,000 or $1,000, it's not attributable objectively. For all of those things, do not use slashing, only reduce the rewards. Like, you know, in your layer, you can penalize like reward emission, but not uh, slashing ETH. So mm. these are some of the principles that basically there, what you're doing is you're benefiting from the decentralized validator set of Ethereum, right? You have thousands of home stakers and other people who are participating and they are supporting this price feed. So you're getting like thousand independent looks at what the right thing is and aggregating all of that information. You don't need to slash them. Even then you're getting the benefit of the Ethereum validator set. So mm -hmm. there is the permission tier. And in the permission tier, we only onboard services that comply with these very simple, clean regulations, as well as like understanding the code is audited and all the standard things that one would want. Yeah. So 
of course, if you're building something on a permissionless tier, which is not protected by the slashing veto, now you have to earn the additional trust from the stakers when the stakers are opting in to Owen's new like hyper slashed Oracle, right? <laughs> yeah. Or like a 20% yield Oracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to convince the stakers why like you're not on the tier with the slashing veto and protections that stakers are used to. Hmm. It puts a fence, a bar for people to now jump across. If you are instead actually a very, very strong protocol, you've run on a permission tier for three years, you have ossified and you you believe and everybody else believes no more risks exist. Now I'm not like, I've grown up. I don't need the slashing veto. I can remove the training wheels. Now you go to the permissionless tier. That is very different from like a degen protocol going on a permissionless tier. Stakers will not opt in. So these are already like built-in mechanisms into the eigenlayer protocol. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah. I need to look a little more into like how slashing, I've, yeah, I, I don't know if we have time, but yeah, I don't have the intuition about how slashing kind of plays into this, but that might be something I need to do on my own time, so. All right, so just one quick question about actually using uh, the protocol, you know, as uh, a degen, I'm very interested in when uh, mm -hmm. restaking will actually go live. And uh, um, on the early access form, you mentioned there'll be benefits for restaking early, so. Anything you could potentially share would be, I'm sure, of interest to our readers. Absolutely. Um, so the uh, uh, the way the platform's built, we have three sides to our market. There is stakers, there is node operators, and then there is services building on top of this. And what we're doing is a phased launch. We want to launch it step by step. Like first step is stakers. So you can just restake. Then there is node operators. You can delegate to a node operator who may be running a simple or a dummy service. And then eventually you launch with anybody can build on these two tiers of services. So three phases of launch. First phase, just restake. Like you just take. So why would you want to restake uh, when there are no services? Number one, uh, right now we see a lot of new stake coming on board to uh, ethereum after the chapella upgrade because now the system has been significantly de-risked so as new stake comes in if they just so one of the ways you restake is by setting the withdrawal credentials to the eigenlayer contracts and if you go and that can be only done when you're entering into staking so if you already want to stake and then you set your withdrawal credentials to your personal like hardware wallet or whatever which is what you would normally do um, in, instead, in Eigenlayer, what you have to do is to add a step in the withdrawal flow where the withdrawals go from the Ethereum to the Eigenlayer contracts, from the Eigenlayer contracts to your hardware wallet. So that's, that's how the flow works. But you have to set it up when you're staking. So if you don't do it now, you know, three months, six months later, whenever the services are launching, it is going to be very difficult for you to exit the stake, go through the exit queue, and then re- like enter into the entry queue of staking. So these frictions, if you want to avoid, you can restake early. What other benefits may be there? When new services are building, some services will have, you know, uh, entry limits. They'll say, I only want like $10 million restake because they don't want to distribute their yield to lots of people, but only to the focus group, which is actually participating in their service. You know, when, where, and they may prioritize restakers who have been in the system long enough. Right. So, you know, mm -hmm. in any system, you have like more experienced people and less experienced people. And of course, there's always a preference to go with the more experienced people. Awesome. 
Cool. Um, I think for, for me, like this, this analogy of um, using Ethereum social consensus as kind of a, a government bailout uh, is, is super interesting. And I think it speaks to how the Ethereum ecosystem has developed where where ethereum is is kind of the like like a nation and or or like a big city um and then you know roll-ups are kind of the suburbs and and then you know there's like different uh you know businesses building on this city or on this nation and so vitalik here is kind of setting the the boundaries for what this nation's responsibility is like what what should its citizens expect um and so he's basically saying there will be no bailouts and you know people building here you know they they can get our security you know they can get our police force or army or whatever um but we won't you know we we, we won't come to the rescue if something goes wrong you know you you, you can't kind of um you know, you, you, you have to figure things out on, on your own. So I, I think that's, I, I really like that analogy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kenela. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that's, you know, th that was really interesting. Um, if you guys don't have any more questions on, on Vitalik's post for Sri Ram or on Eigenlayer, uh, we can move on to the second part of the show and go over the other headlines of the week. I just want to add one oh, one thing. Uh, as we yeah. uh, build some of the aspects of the protocol, we are looking for you know people who are excited by this vision of open innovation to come join us. So, if particularly we are looking for a blockchain security lead and and you know a smart contract engineer, contract engineer, solutions architect, you know there's a lot of these job postings on eigenlayer.xyz. So please, uh, any of your nice. listeners so who may be interested, please go take a look. Yeah, we'll awesome. share that in our Discord as well. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I'm just sharing here on on your website just so people take a look. So it looks like here's all the... It's in about well, uh, careers. Anyways, careers? It, it's in about and careers on, on, the, on the top. Yeah. Oh, yeah, perfect. Oh, yeah. I don't know why it's not... Clicking over. Oh, there we go. Here we go. Here's all the open roles. So perfect. Check them out. All right, Siriam, thank you so much for joining us. That was super interesting. Yeah. Thank you thank so much, Channel. Oh, I see. Yeah, fascinating. Bye. Yeah. Okay, very cool. Um so uh yeah, that was one of the biggest headlines this week, uh, at least for us, just like super interesting um, looking at how Vitalik is delineating uh, Ethereum's role as, as the Ethereum ecosystem grows. Um, and then moving on, um, let's see, we have markets. So what's going on, YYC? I think we had this story on um, options expiring. Yeah, so we had one of the biggest um, option expiries earlier this morning, uh, 8 a.m. UTC. So around um, $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin and ETH options expired. And uh, the majority of that, I mean, I think the uh, price with the uh, highest open interest for ETH was at around 1800 
And that's what's generally referred to as max pain point in terms of options. Because what that means is max pain means that the most, um, the, the largest number of traders lose money, essentially. And uh, um, if you look at that chart that we have in there, that you can see those big bars indicate that, uh, you know, there was a lot of activity in those particular contracts around 1800, both calls and puts. So which means if you expire, the if the price of ETH, at expiry is 1800 on the dot all those options would expire worthless right because neither the call holders nor the put holders are benefiting you need to be have a delta in either direction to make money on these options um so it's interesting to see that you know immediately after the expiry uh, markets took off so it's mm -hmm. almost like you know price was being surprised suppressed by the market maker saying you know all right we don't want these option holders to make money let's uh, you know wait wait it out and then let the market move. And this is something you see a lot in traditional finance, you know, with especially with um, it's called option pinning and uh, especially with weekly options and things with uh, on stocks. It happens a lot. That's so interesting. So, so it's like market makers holding some somehow like the price of an asset at some option price to screw over option holders. Basically, yeah. They, because wow. they like most of the market makers would be the guys who sold the options to begin with, right? So they've so they're the counterparty on those trades to begin with. So now it sometimes so happens that you know if there's really like a push and you know people suddenly start buying and uh, uh, on the expiry day and price starts moving away from the uh, intended pinpoint, you'll see like a massive squeeze in either direction because then the market makers are forced to hedge right in the same direction so let's say for example they've sold calls with the 1800 strike right and while it's while it's trading around 1800 they're like, all right it's all good it's going to expire you know we're all we're fine and suddenly let's say this like with a few hours left to expiry the price shoots up to 1850. now they're on the hook for 50 dollars per contract on all that um open interest, right? So what do they need to do? They need to hedge against a further upside move by buying futures or spot mm. to hedge, right? Which then adds more buying pressure and kind of push pushes that move, which is essentially where this whole idea of a squeeze comes from, right? From both sides, shorts, short squeeze, long squeeze can happen either way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. But at least in terms of this expiry, uh, it seems that, you know, it's been quite... I mean, the markets hasn't really moved at all in the last two weeks. It's been kind of hovering between this 1770 to 1850 area. And if you scroll down in the story, you can see that ETH volatility is actually at the lowest it's ever been mm. since Deribit um, uh, created this DVOL index. Mm. Yeah. So generally speaking in markets, it's calm before the storm. Right. You have periods of calm, which like precede, you know, the big range expansion or whatever that you'll have. So direction TBD, but uh, I'd expect a big move to happen sooner rather than later. Interesting. Yeah. And we well, got the I, I haven't been following the debt ceiling at all. But uh, anyways, I just know that that's sorry. I mean, it's every couple of years. Right. We have this drama. Yeah. Uh, it's brinksmanship right until the end. And then they say, oh, no, we can't default. So right. here's the nth hour deal. So, yeah. This how, time, how though, does... I mean, Trump seems... Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, like, 
just how, how does the debt ceiling uh, impact crypto? I mean, I think it's a dollar sentiment. Uh, it's the dollar that would be affected the most, right? If the mm. if there was technically a default, like the dollar would take a massive hit, right? And uh, that would you'd see crypto pump. Hmm. Of course, I mean, it's possible that this would just be like financial Armageddon if the US was to default mm -hmm. and everything just crashes and like burns. But yeah. yeah. But generally speaking, when you have like a country that defaults, which means you'd have the currency weakening, hard assets like gold and other stuff should technically rally. Of course, we haven't really had like a reserve currency default in a long time. So that's... A very different situation i think like if you had asked me before this year what would happen to crypto in in that case i would have said crypto falls with everything else but to me it was just so interesting to see how bitcoin reacted with the whole you know banking crisis and stablecoin kind of jitters um that you know maybe Maybe people do see it as as this kind of hedging um, asset. At least for at least Bitcoin, uh, because like Bitcoin rallied after uh, all, all these bank failures. Um, after like people weren't sure about stablecoin uh, collateral, uh, people went actually did go to Bitcoin in in those cases. So yeah, who knows like. Maybe if if there was some sort of U.S. dollar collapse, uh, even as everything else is is plunging, maybe Bitcoin would rally. But who knows? I mean, traditionally in times of crisis, like what are your safe haven assets? It's been the dollar. Like in two thousand eight, it was the dollar because I mean we mm -hmm. didn't have thirty five trillion of debt back then. It was still like only fifteen or so, right? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was still relatively safe in fiscal terms. So everyone ran to the dollar, gold, stuff like that. Um, but this time around, if you have the dollar collapsing, where do you run? What do you buy? Right. Euros, yuan, like your choices are very limited. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like gold and Bitcoin. Basically. But I mean, they're, they're not going to let the, the US default. They'll just raise the ceiling. Trump would. <laughs> You think so? Just for the headline, you know, like I did it, I broke it. For sure, yeah, maybe. No, that'd be insane. But I mean, there has to be some some sort of limit. Like, you can't just keep raising it. Like, you know, just I mean, have it's infinite at debt. This point, to be honest, like, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but I mean, oh, that just means the, as... the inflation like continues. Yeah, what do you think? The only oh. American in, in the oh. <laughs> in the room. <laughs> oh, God. I probably know the least. I, I was trying to hope stay silent on this one because <laughs> I, I come on, YYC. I, I honestly I don't know. I need to talk to more people about macro stuff because I, I don't do very much of that. And uh, man, but does it concern you like as crypto. an American citizen, <laughs> like the dollar, like the debt and all that stuff? Is it like something that you think about or is it just like part of the background like just to get an idea of sentiment sure sure as, you know i mean yeah i just don't know how representative i am as uh, as an american i mean I, I don't know i'm so heads down on crypto i don't think about it and then i'll just see a tweet like 
hey guys, like buy gold and like buy ramen just in case. Um, and I kind of vaguely freak out and then I, I don't know, just keep, keep writing stories and I don't know, uh, go to dinner. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's where I am. Um, but, but that, that's like, I don't know. I, I would like to have a more sophisticated opinion, but I, I just, I think I, I don't on this one. So, uh, yeah, full disclosure. I think, I think that there, there will, I think it'll be like when people's like savings start becoming affected, that's when there's more pressure to act. Because I think up until now, Americans like didn't really think about, about inflation or yeah. like about yeah. the value of the dollar. Like it, it was just always a given, or at least like, yeah. you know, in, in recent memory. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't until kind of post COVID that that actually became an issue because of like all of the trillion dollar printing uh, that they did just accelerated um, the erosion of the value of the dollar. So yeah. um, if you keep raising the debt ceiling, if you keep like printing your way out of debt and spending, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry about my dog. Just, then, yeah. then, then I think like you know, like people will start thinking about it more. I think that they'll start pressuring um, lawmakers, politicians to actually take take action, like rein in spending, uh, become more fiscally conservative. Um, it it just you know to me, it has to it has to happen. Like, but once people, um, once people's like savings uh, are affected uh, and yeah. yeah it just hasn't been the case so far yeah i know i do think that's accurate in terms of this this feeling that the dollar wasn't really something you thought about like you thought about maybe your you know your investments weren't optimized but they were at least safe in the dollar and now it feels mm -hmm. that feels less less true um yeah i think for the average person yeah so. um so going to more lighter topics <laughs> there was a meme coin trading bot uh, this week uh, making millions and this is just fully uh, on crypto land uh, not not tradfi or macro so yeah what's what was going on here um just inter interesting like the it can be seen as like one of the the shovels in the meme coin kind of gold rush Absolutely. Uh, so this bot has been around for a long time and it's free to use. They have a premium tier as well that gives you like like turbo access and like quicker sniping and stuff. But it's really useful because if you're looking to buy tokens early as soon as they launch and as soon as liquidity is added and things, you can set up tasks using this thing and it works inside Telegram. So you give it the contract address, how much gas you're willing to pay, etc. How much you want to buy, All like you set all the parameters and you, it just waits for the token to go live uh, and as soon as it detects that it goes ahead and buys uh, it for you which is a lot more intuitive than i mean uniswap is easy to use but when you're trying to get something quickly you'll just and with the gas fees that you have now you're just wasting money with failed transactions you know if you're not because everyone else is using bots like these so mm -hmm. in order to compete you have to as well and they charge i believe a 1% um, fee on profits that mm -hmm. you generate. So 
if they made four and a half million, that means the users made 450 million. Mm. Right? I mean, that's quite crazy in terms of meme coin profits. I'm sure they gave a lot of it back in other coins, but... Uh, uh, How do yeah. they calculate profits? But it's, it's it's like it's like trading like it's fees on trading volume. So it's like buying or selling. Like it, I think it's just not necessarily profit, right? I'm pretty sure it is profit. Really? Is it? But Every profit, they have to know. Sell order. Oh, okay. Hmm. Maybe it was another one that I used that was only charging on profits. <laughs> there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but so it would just be. I wonder how they would calculate profit. Like then they would have to know your your cost basis, right? Or like what what time you enter. That's pretty thing. easy to do, right? Because really? for change. a particular token from an address, you could easily see when it was bought, when it sold, difference. Sure. Like that's how all these portfolio trackers do it as well, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So here but, it says like the fee revenue comes from a one percent tax on every successful buy or sell order executed through its app. Okay. Um, so fees are automatically taken from a user's balance once the balance exceeds 0 0.01 BNB or ETH. Yeah. So it's I, I guess it's like the amount of fees is a sign of just like the, the volume traded through through this Telegram mm -hmm. bot. And it's like 4.5 million. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. for this month, so like in three weeks, it it made 3.5 million and that's more than it's made ever like in the whole time it's been live since um july last year wow. so which which just like it just tells you that meme coin frenzy has you know really picked up this month you can see in the i chart. wonder how it would have fared in like 2021 they oh, would yeah. have made like <laughs> I, oh I'd like... we would have made a killing <laughs> Just on like SHIB and like those dog coins alone. Oof. Yeah. Because it's it's cross chain. It's not just it's not just for a given it's Binance a given like chain. ETH, I think. Yeah, okay. it's got like ETH, Arbitrum, Binance Chain. Basically uh -huh. wherever there's shit coins, the bot works. Right on. Yeah. 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 Oh here, yeah. Here it says supports trading on pancakes. Oh, on Ethereum, BNB, Arbitrum. And that's it. But it says 90% of revenue comes from Ethereum. Hmm. You know, that's surprising. Like this time around, there haven't been that many successful like coins on Binance Chain or mm. Arbitrum. I mean, there are a few, but it's surprising that even with Layer 2s being, you know, up and running, people are still choosing Ethereum to launch and trade these coins. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like yeah, mainnet just has like such that like Lindy effect. Like intuitively, mm -hmm. I'm like, like if an NFT is launched on on an L2, I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, L1 things have a premium. I don't know whether that's good or not, but yeah. With NFTs, yeah, I I agree. But when it comes to these coins, what? Yeah. How does it matter? Like with provenance of like when which chain it came from, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's is it like, because like you expect more liquidity? That has to that that yeah. has to be one of the reasons. I mean, yeah. people yeah. definitely have more ETH to throw around on mainnet than on other chains. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I guess you know this fees on this bot shows that meme coin mania is is not over yet. 
<laughs> yeah, um, it's always the picks and shovels, right, that make money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. being an exchange or anything commission based is is awesome because there's no risk to you. You make money whether the client wins or loses. Right. Yeah. It's the best business ever. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of making money, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it, really interesting. Trezor, the um, I guess like biggest competitor of Ledger, the hardware wallet is seeing sales spike uh, this week after after the whole ledger recover um controversy so um it, it looks like you know it wasn't just some crypto twitter drama on ledger like people are actually taking action um and maybe changing hardware wallets um after you know uh, we, we had a um, someone from Ledger here on this show last week uh, talking about the implications of this of this feature. But basically, the concern is that Ledger ha- has access to a user's seed phrase. And this is an opt-in feature um, and so on. But I think, you know, everyone was unnerved at learning that hardware wallets can actually, you know, access your seed phrase. So, and I think that's, there's still... It's still unclear, I think, whether that's the case for Trezor. Yeah, Owen, what, what, I yeah. think, I don't know. What, what do you? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, the latest update, um, it, it's so hard becoming an expert at everything at once, but um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the latest update is is that, yeah, I wrote the story yesterday and I was trolling Reddit and their Ledger's co-founder said that his, that a firmware update um through any hardware wallet could retrieve a seed phrase and that was just the way hardware wallets worked um and i mean um trezor's firmware is open source so i think it it it, like people would be able to know that that was happening um but i think he uh ledger's co-founder is saying that's possible i just emailed a pr person um yesterday for this story about whether that could whether that was true and then the pr person said not actually possible that a firmware couldn't retrieve a treasure seed phrase. So I still like don't, I actually just don't know what's true at this point. People have said contradictory hmm. things. Um, I know. So treasury, yeah. treasury saying um, um, a, like firmware update cannot access their seed phrase, but ledger says that it can. Yes. Um, yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I, so we'll yeah. Who knows? But I guess like, a major difference from Ledger is that Tracer is open source. So maybe, you know, between the two, people are preferring something that can be, you know, verified externally. Yeah. Yeah. And and Ledger vote, like Ledger is obviously seeing that the market values that and by accelerating their open source roadmap. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see. I mean, yeah. And then like, like that guy, giving I, I guess like a semi-novel exploit for the treasure trezor mm. t which i don't think was a coincidence i mean I, I feel like someone was like you should do that um but uh yeah <laughs> anyways so you know lots of hardware wallet drama this week for sure yeah 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 we're still seeing that the fallout from the the ledger thing um okay cool and then moving on to uh 
DeFi and other uh, crypto stuff. What's this Solana integrating with AI? Um, yeah, I mean, I can I could summarize Sam's story. I I I, I won't say I totally understand it, but um, mm -hmm. uh, yes, I mean, so Solana did um, integrate a chat GPT plugin. It's available on GitHub. Solana's founder gave the hypothetical of being able to like being able to write to an AI plugin and generate an NFT set, I think through text and, and you'd be able to like list out the traits and, you know, then use stable diffusion to create the images. Um, and, you know, and he even said like set up a discord, you know? Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it's interesting. It was an interesting day in terms of AI. I think, um, it was also noted that Paradigm changed their website. And so the language on their website doesn't make them like a, a crypto firm anymore. Um, oh, interesting. So, yeah, that, that kind of, I saw that just pass briefly, um, some crypto gossip. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, like, I, I mean, yeah. Every AI crypto fund is now an AI fund. <laughs> I, I mean, it was crazy. Like Paradigm is, you know, they're, they're such amazing researchers, I feel like. Um, yeah. I mean, they rebranded to Metaverse Funds first, right? Crypto funds yeah. became Metaverse Funds, and then now they're oh, becoming right. AI funds, I think. Right? Wait, who, who did that? No, no just in general, in general, I'm saying like, yeah. In, oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. the VC spending sprees on like yeah. GameFi mm -hmm. and uh, Metaverse stuff. Last, I just saw like someone posted a chart this morning that, you know, if you were like a big landowner in these metaverses, you're like pretty oh, much on God. the street right yeah. now. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in terms of value. You uh, can just live in your metaverse land. It's all good, bro. If only, right? <laughs> I've got some penthouses I'd love to offload if uh, you're interested. <laughs> uh, do we do we become an AI news company? Oh my god! Yeah, we got, <laughs> will that we land got. us some VC cash? <laughs> oh, I'm sure it would. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but human judgment is what makes news news, right? I assume so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like um, it. yeah, it would be hard to automate us. I, I maybe maybe famous last words, but yes. <laughs> we hope, right? <laughs> Um, no, but seriously, I think, uh, I think we, we should like, I think everyone will be thinking about how to use AI and it is a useful tool, including for news writing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do think that, that you can't, you know, like you can't, um, rely on AI for like reporting and interviewing. Uh, people and like networking and getting scoops and all that stuff um, is where the reporter's value come in. But, you know, like writing some, you know, just like breaking story uh, that, that you're seeing elsewhere or or doing like like evergreen, like what is Bitcoin kind of uh, content? You know, I think why, why not yeah, leverage tech? And it's kind of what um, Anatoly from Solana is saying here, like every developer building a consumer app should be thinking about how to interact with AI. Um, yeah. So I, I think we'll see more and more like AI integrations in, in crypto. It just, it, it makes sense. Totally.
Um, then moving on, uh, multi-chain. Um, th this is a strange one. I don't know if there's like more updates on this, but multi-chain is this big bridge. Uh, the team was, I don't know, rumored to be arrested. And so token plunged. Um, yeah. yeah What's the latest? Yeah. yeah, no no huge updates. I haven't been able to keep a great hold on that, but... Um... So they tweeted um, a couple of days ago saying yeah. that um, due to force majeure, a bunch of their roots are down. Now, I don't know what kind of act of God they... Uh, I mean, getting arrested, I don't think can be considered uh, force majeure. I mean, in, te in the technical sense, but I don't know, like what uh, what these guys are doing. Yeah, yeah. They, they definitely got uh, thesaurus out or maybe chat GPT tossed them that word. That's a, an amazing phrase. <laughs> Yeah, like I've like I've only ever seen it in like real estate contracts and stuff. You know, like if you know, like your house gets destroyed, you know that's like force majeure. Oh my god! Yeah, so, yeah. Davi Davi Wan, I think I'm saying her last name right. She did tweet something horribly cryptic, and she's an investor in um in MultiCoin, and she was saying that there's potential for crypto founders just to like be. She was suggesting kind of. Uh, I, I suppose arrested. I should pull up the tweet so I don't misquote her, but um, you know, kind of semi-arbitrarily, if you control a lot of money in China, she was saying Chinese founders need to be very careful. So, and she mm. tweeted that the same morning that multi-coin um, or multi-chain, uh, the rumors hit. So I, I think she knows something. She didn't respond to me on Telegram, but we'll we'll tell you guys if something happens. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just like seeing here. So obviously, you know, we reported on the token, um, TVL on the chain, also uh, fell off a cliff uh, after. Mm. So, oh, well. yeah. I believe like yeah, Phantom it's... is the, the most exposed chain to multi-chain, uh, which makes mm -hmm. sense because like Andre had a hand in like creating multi-chain when it first came out. Uh, I think it's like 30% or so of uh, Phantom TVL is like through multi-chain, which oh, wow. means like oh, wow. the... Ah, so is, is Phantom TVL also down? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I haven't taken a look at that. Um, yeah, but... I don't know. I mean, this this is also just um, a sign about, you know, just like regulatory risk. Yeah. If, you know, because this team is in China. Dovi is saying that the, you know, Chinese local governments are cracking down on crypto opera operations. And um, yeah, it looks like Phantom TVL is, is also down. So I don't know. We'll keep you guys posted on. Uh, on the latest on this, like I, I don't think there are any any new updates, uh, huge updates since since our story. But you know, this this is like the fifth largest bridge, uh, I think. Um, yeah. So you know, many you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the second largest. The only like three of the five largest bridges are just like specific. Uh, Block tangent, block tangent ones like the Arbitrum bridges. I think one of the okay. top five. And then, but this is the top two in terms of generalized bridges by TVL. 
Okay, so. Gracie. Yeah, they, they had uh, over 300 million of TVL before this, uh, the news. Uh, now there's 240. So yeah, I mean, it's there's there's a lot of money at stake. Um, and so yeah, we'll, we'll we'll keep an eye on this. But um, you know, it just goes to show like how how important it is to to be in a in a place where you can freely operate uh, or or at least go fully anon. I guess yeah. is the option. Yeah. Um, okay, and then we're we're over time. So let's let's see. Uh, let's go over quickly um, the other headlines that we have. So uh multi-chain um oh oh and th this was a really interesting one from you tokenized bonds surpassed 200 million in market cap maybe you can give a, a quick overview sure yeah i mean yeah few sentence summary uh i think i wrote that yeah maybe five days ago or something um yeah so tokenized bonds just i believe for Ethereum and Polygon. I think there are some other experiments on other chains, um, but uh, that crossed 200 mil uh, million last week. And so a lot of that has been growth of um, tokenized versions of US, I think almost exclusively of uh, US mm -hmm. treasuries. Um, so, and, I, and they're both, uh, the biggest gainers are a product by Ando of a version of tokenized securities and one by a company called matrix doc and so basically institutions are buying these and on ondo at least i think some of them i think it was like a third are collateralizing those tokenized uh treasury bonds and borrowing against um so that that's the news i mean lots more going on than we can get to here but definitely mm -hmm. just interesting to see these tokenized uh securities um happening and it's just fascinating because i feel like people have been talking about that since 2017 they were like oh let's just put all yeah. the stock market on the blockchain so it's interesting to see how that's happening so yeah it's actually happening tokenized treasuries um yeah. and interesting that it's happening now with with um yield rising yeah i mean would that increase demand for treasuries if yields are rising? Because like yield rising means that the price is lower. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, new treasuries have a higher coupon too, right? But in in terms of um, demand, yes, I'd say so because uh, mm -hmm. treasury yields are now higher than DeFi yields. So yeah. I mean, so money just right. chases the yield, right? So. Yeah. Why would I lend on Aave or Compound for 3% when I can buy a treasury bill uh, at 5%? Right? Okay. In terms of perceived risk, I mean, treasuries are the risk-free rate, right, in our system. So uh, yeah. I guess it's... Um, Even though the US is about to default, but anyways, <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah, no, super interesting trend. I mean... Um, and like you pointed out here in the story, interesting to see also that the same is not happening with stocks. So a lot more interesting interest in in treasuries right now and tokenized treasuries than than stocks. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, recommend uh, you guys uh, read Owen's story on this. Super interesting stuff. Um, then oh this seems like it, it happened like so long ago but it was actually just <laughs> it just um last weekend that uh, 
uh, Tornado Cash was hacked or exploited, I guess. Um, somebody uh, was able to uh, to approve uh, a governance proposal that had some code uh, hidden inside that allowed the hacker to award himself a bunch of uh, governance votes. And with those governance votes, they were able to steal um, more than 1 million in assets in, in both uh, TORN tokens and ETH. Um, really funny that they actually used Tornado Cash to, <laughs> to clean the ETH that they stole. Um, and separately, there's kind of an implementation of Tornado Cash that also has money at risk. Um, and then, super interesting, the hacker actually proposed a fix to the exploit that they introduced themselves. Um, and that's being voted on uh, right now. I don't believe that's been approved yet. Uh, but they have the power to approve it or reject it because they have all the votes. Um, so just super interesting stuff. Um, Torn token, token. Uh, plunged on this, and this follows the 85% plunge from when was it May, I think, last year that uh, the US sanctioned August, sorry, August last year that um, the US Treasury Department uh, sanctioned, famously sanctioned uh, Tornado Cash code. So it's like, you know, some people were saying the, the nail on the coffin for Tornado Cash, unfortunately. Um, but we'll see if it can recover from this. So interesting stuff happening there. Uh, we'll report on whether this governance fix gets approved or not. Um, and then an uh, interesting report from the Fed. Uh, looks like um, most crypto holders stuck around in 2022. So um, what was it? 10% of adults held or used crypto in the US in, last year. And that was ja just two percentage points uh, lower than in 2021. So even through the bear market, people just held all the way down <laughs> as you know, one usually does. And finally, um, oh, this was really interesting. Um, a Bitcoin-based NFT was topping the charts in, in volume, right? Uh, Owen, you had this story? Yeah. Or sales. Yeah. sales. Yeah, uh, well, volume, I feel like volume and sales are are yeah. almost equivalent here or maybe yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. i don't know but yeah, anyways yeah it was that was a quick story but just pointed out by i'm gonna pronounce his name wrong he was on the podcast a long time ago is it chow wang um but anyways he pointed out yeah. just that um yeah that that noting that a a uh bitcoin nft collection was up um and the and that was on the top of the charts and just that that was that was moderately novel and you know i i don't know you know how we're going to coalesce around talking about bitcoin nfts like our ordinals different things are we just going to start calling them nfts um mm -hmm. so maybe some people would probably push back on that but it is interesting that at least based on this website crypto slam they're saying that all of a sudden you know bitcoin is the sec is the second largest chain for um nfts and you know I, I went in these guys discords and they're like think about it guys you know like think about how big bitcoin is like we're we're so early and it's interesting to see all this like we're so early rhetoric 
on Bitcoin, which I'm also always scared of. We're so early, but um, <laughs> yeah, you know, like, um, it's definitely there's a lot of that on Bitcoin with all the ordinals action. So, so we'll crazy. Yeah. yeah, like even the same memes that you, you get in like on Ethereum is, are going over to Bitcoin land. <laughs> yeah, I know. I saw like Bitcoin miladies, like, and it's just like, oh, wow. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> okay, but interesting in any case that NFTs seem to have taken off on, on Bitcoin, even if NFTs aren't actually NFTs there. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, I think so that, uh, that wraps it up. Um, I was highlighting Bitcoin TV's comment that uh, we're all backholders together uh, now through through the bear market. Um, and just thank you for uh, all your participation on uh, in the live stream Bitcoin TV. Hope to see you and everyone else tuning in um, next week. So yeah, unless where was your Owen? If you have anything to add, I just saw the Zach Efron comment. I assume that's for me. Um, no, I'm not. Jack Do you get that a lot? No, no, but I, I think I know who that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Whatever. Anyways, all good. Okay. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend. Yeah. See you guys.